is the most important thing about the Christian faith? How does it claim to connect you with God, forgive your sins, and give you eternal life? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pren, and welcome to Bible 805. I've been quite sick the past few weeks with no voice, which is why I haven't recorded the podcast. I'm still a bit scratchy, but we're going to press ahead because this is a lesson that I'm very excited about, and I trust that you will be too when we're done. But back to our original question, what is the most important thing about the Christian faith? Is it knowing all the things you learned about the Old Testament that been studying the last few months? Is it holding to certain beliefs like a six-day creation or five-point Calvinism? Is it things that you do like being sure that you don't cheat on your wife or cheat on your taxes or just do all sorts of awful things? If you don't do all those bad things, is that what matters? As we'll see in our lesson today, it isn't what you do or what you know the most important thing about Christianity that is at the core of what it takes to connect you with God is a who. The Bible is very clear when someone asks Jesus the question of how they can know God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we want a relationship with God in this life, forgiveness of sins that have severed our relationship with Him, and want to live in heaven after we die, Jesus said He is the only way we can achieve that. He said that because though He was God, He came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and by His historically verifiable resurrection from the dead, validated all the claims He made for Himself that He is the only way of salvation. One of His closest friends, the Apostle John, who wrote one of the Gospels that we're going to be talking about later, put it this way, God has given men eternal life, and this real life is to be found only in His Son. It follows naturally that any man who has genuine contact with Christ has this life. If he is not, then he does not possess this life at all. I have written to you like this who already believe in the name of God's Son, so that you may be quite sure that here and now you possess eternal life. Now, not only does the Bible have these very positive statements about what it means to know God, but it also has some kind of scary negative ones. And one of the passages of the Bible, until I really studied it, that used to just terrify me is in Matthew seven twenty-two and 23. Here's where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, it isn't great works. It isn't fantastic miracles. It all boils down to, do you know Jesus? To repeat, even in this negative, it shows that the core of Christianity is, do you know Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Now, our lesson today is an overview of the Gospels. If you're reading along in the reading plan, this is the section that we're at right now. And the good news is that these books are the ones in the Bible that specifically tell us about Jesus and his life on earth so that we can come to know him and trust him for our salvation. Now, before we get into this, 
I want to share one more thing that I hope will clarify why this is so important. And that is many theologians talk about the Christian faith and they make a distinction between what are the primary things that we need to know about the faith and what are secondary. One primary thing and the key primary thing is what we just talked about. What do we believe about Jesus? Now the secondary issues, we can get distracted by them and sometimes really to the detriment of our eternal souls. This is not just a a theological discussion. This is just really important. Now, it's not to say that some of these secondary issues aren't important, but they are not what determines your eternal salvation. Let me give you two examples of them, and there are many, many more. In the beginning of our Bible, some Christians believe in a literal six days of creation. Now, other Christians have a variety of beliefs that reconcile both believing in the literal truth of the Bible, while at the same time believing that the earth was created over these immense periods of time that geology shows us. Now, which one's right? Which one's wrong? Now, we can debate all we want to on this, and I'll tell you what I think a little bit later. Not that it matters, but um, but that's a secondary issue. Now, another thing, at the end of our Bible, some Christians believe in what's called a pre-tribulation rapture, where God will snatch all of the Christians up to heaven before unleashing this terrible judgment on the earth, and at the end of seven years, Jesus will come back again. Now, that the popular Left Behind series was that idea. Now, other Christians believe that no, there's not going to be this pre-tribulation rapture that times might get worse or we don't we don't really know exactly what's going to happen but that Jesus is going to surprise us that he is going to come at one time and that's it history is over now as important as these things are they are secondary issues but if you don't make the distinction it can be really tragic. I read a story in the Christian Post this last week, and I want to share quite a bit of it with you. They because it it shows how a uh, uh, too firm a belief in secondary issues can literally be dangerous to your eternal soul. This is a story of a young man who turned away from the faith, and he. I'm going to read you different sections out of it, and I have uh, where it's at in the notes, so if you want to read the whole thing, you can. He said, being a warrior for Christ was, without any hesitation, everything to me. I was homeschooled in Oregon with a strong emphasis on debate, the written word, and defending the faith. I don't remember asking Jesus into my heart, but my parents say I was about four or five at an Easter Sunday service. What I do remember is that my entire childhood revolved around reinforcing and strengthening that commitment through a social life that centered on church and a curriculum centered on creation science. I was eight when I first heard the earth was 6,000 years old, which quickly became a central theological litmus test for whether one took God at his word. Now, I have to put in the parentheses here, I totally, totally disagree with that. That is not the one and only test of whether you take God at his word. That is a secondary issue, the creation science. Now, some of you listening to this might not like hearing that, but that is the truth. And there are the 
the most important thing, again, we always have to get back to Jesus, not just creation science. But let me continue with his story. I'm, I'm getting out of order here. Um, the young man, before I get back into the direct quotes, he studied the Bible. He took seminary classes online. He studied to be a lawyer. But this one issue... That remained the focus of his Christian life and faith. And then the inevitable, in my humble opinion, happened. He goes on to say, In the interest of being the best Christian apologist I could be, I learned a fair bit about arguments for and against Christianity and took a strong interest in the work of, a, of the apologist who influenced me the most growing up, Ken Ham. When he debated Bill Nye, the science guy, on the scientific legitimacy of creationism, I was about halfway through law school and organized a debate watch party, ordered pizza, and gathered my evangelical colleagues to root for Ham together. So imagine how devastating it was to watch my childhood icon be so embarrassingly destroyed before my very eyes. Ken Ham brought faith to an evidence fight and even my fundamentalist creation eyes could see it. Again, he so just completely focused on this topic, and he decided, and this is where it's so sad, that since he could not find objective science to support creationist thinking, that the entire Christian faith could not be trusted. I completely disagree with that, but let me go on and again continue with his story. Could I modify my views of Genesis and keep the gospel intact? In the end, I couldn't make it fit. Not for lack of trying, either. I just couldn't separate creationism from the gospel. My entire frame of reference for Christianity had Genesis as its foundation. If the creation story is unreliable, then why believe in the resurrection? If Noah's flood didn't happen as described, why then believe that Jesus was coming back someday? I say this with no disrespect for those who do not, who do reinterpret the creation account in order to let their faith evolve. But for me, I may as well convert it to another religion or no religion at all, because that was so was no further from my starting point. To bend my rigid faith was to risk shattering it entirely. So in the end, I lost my faith. He is now the executive director and general counsel of the Humanist Society of the Greater Phoenix area, and he's serving as an organizer, advocate, and board member for the Secular Coalition of Arizona. This story, to me, is so terribly sad because this young man did not make the distinction between the most important thing in the Christian faith, and that is a trust in Jesus as Savior and Instead of that, trust in a secondary issue. Now, I don't want that to happen to any of us. Maybe our faith isn't based on creationist thinking, but on maybe a certain political stance or loyalty to a denomination. And when that denomination falls or fails, so does our faith. One example of this in the Catholic Church, there is horrendous abuse, and there is no denying that. But that does not mean that the whole Catholic faith, the whole Christian faith, is wrong. So, even though it was a horrible, horrible thing, that is not primary. Our faith must always be in Christ alone. And that is what we are going to look at in the Gospels. If you are searching, researching the Christian faith, look at them first. 
Really study what they have to say about Jesus. Make your decisions based on that. And then you'll have a solid foundation to evaluate other things. So let's look at Jesus. Now, before we get into the Gospels, let's look at what we've seen and what we've learned about him if you've been with us, if we've been reading through the Bible this year. First of all, he's there at creation. We know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all there involved in creation. We know the Messiah was promised immediately following Adam and Eve's sin. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament pictured how Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice for sins. The prophets all talked about him. There are anywhere from 65 to over 500 prophecies or references. Now, it depends on who's counting and whether it's a direct one or an illusion, whatever, in the Old Testament that talk about him and, by the way, that have been verified as happened hundreds of years later in history. Let me just read a few of them to you in Isaiah, and we are will be you'll you'll be hearing this as Christmas is coming up. But it says, "For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign." on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. And then his ministry is described also in Isaiah, where it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now this is what's really interesting about this passage is this is a passage that when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth and he read this in the synagogue, after he finished reading it, he looked up and it it says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he is saying, this is about me. Now, that was, of course, very shocking. They decided that it couldn't possibly be true when they tried to stone him. But um, that is what he, this is how he described himself in that way. And this had been prophesied hundreds of years before. The details of his life in Micah 5.2, it says specifically that he'd be born in Bethlehem. In Zechariah 9.9, that he would enter Jerusalem while riding on a donkey. In Psalm 22.16, that his hands and feet would be pierced. There are so many things that we could do a whole study on this, on how the Old Testament has these specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And, you know, some mathematicians have worked out all these statistics where the chances that as many of them as were specifically fulfilled, that that could really happen without divine intervention is, you know, the probability is like a bazillion to one. I I don't even know what it is. But um, very specific prophecies about him. Now, then in the end of our Bible, 
we see the picture of his eternal reign in glory, where it says, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor, glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him, who sits on the throne into the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So we see Jesus throughout the entire Bible, but what's really exciting about the Gospels is we have this very focused picture. We see the Lord of Eternity coming to earth, incarnated. Now, living here in California, we have a lot of carne asada and carne this and carne that. Carne is meat. Jesus became kind of in meat, <laughs> incarnated. He was in flesh and blood. He was tangible. He was touchable. He walked around with his creation. That's what the Gospels are all about. What Jesus was like in his humanity while he was still God. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of them and then we'll talk again just a little bit of an overview about each one. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now these are not traditional biographies. There are three of them that are very similar in content, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call these the synoptic Gospels and that's because they have a lot of the same stories, the same wording. Now the term synoptic comes from the Greek syn, meaning together S-Y-N, like um, synthesis and you know different words like that that mean you know putting stuff together so the word sin and then optic meaning seeing so you're seeing the same things the synoptic gospels now the book of john is really different it's not so much about events as about who jesus is now each of these is from a very different viewpoint and for a different audience and we'll explain that more in just a minute your reading plan that you're going through if you're following the plan is a synoptic approach where you read the same story in matthew mark and luke and if it's mentioned in john there now i hate to tell you this but i don't think that's the best way to read it now you can uh, go through and read it this way in terms of our study now whatever but when you do it that way i think you lose a real sense of the wholeness and the difference in audience and tone of voice and just how they tell the story in the gospels so i would encourage you go ahead and follow the reading plan but to get to know jesus take time to read each of the gospels as a whole as a unit. Now let me give you a few upfront tips, a you know, little information about each one. The book of Matthew, it was written by Jesus' disciple Matthew. He was a former tax collector. Now we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but his audience was very clearly a Jewish one. Now um, he doesn't explain Hebrew terms. He assumes that they're going to be familiar with the Old Testament. This book, even though time-wise it was probably written after Mark, all of the compilers of the Bible have always put it first in the New Testament because being the most Hebrew, um, quoting all of the Old Testament that it does, it's a wonderful bridge between the Old and New Testaments. He constantly talks about how various things that happened in Jesus' life fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. Here are some examples. 
after he talks about the birth of Jesus, he summarizes it by saying, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. Here he's quoting Isaiah 7.14. And then near the end of Jesus' life, it says, uh, he, the passage in Matthew says, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And here he's quoting Zechariah 9.9. Now, Another commentator said that this was so important to the Jews to learn that the Messiah was about to initiate his reign. And so Matthew calls attention to the kingdom in more than 35 passages. He also identifies Jesus as the son of David. And in his genealogy, when he starts the book, he shows exactly how he was descended from David. Matthew's clear goal was to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah, that these thousands of years of prophecy were fulfilled in Jesus. And so he has in his gospel more than 50 direct quotes from the Old Testament and 75 allusions, references to it. I would encourage you, when you read through it, mark those. Usually he he sets them apart. He'll just say, this was said in the prophets. This was said to fulfill that. And if you have a Bible that cross-references things, you can see exactly where the Old Testament put that. I know the first time I did that reading through Matthew, it was really striking to me. I didn't realize how careful Matthew was to go through and cite all of these things. Now, this is just my um, imagination, but think about it for a minute. What it must have been like to be Matthew. We believe that he got to know Jesus in Capernaum, which was Jesus' um, northern sort of outpost. That was sort of his base of operations for a lot of things that he did. Now, he would have had his public ministry going on for a good while before he called Matthew. Now, being a tax collector, Matthew would have had his office sort of an outdoor thing, you know, booth, whatever, set up in a very public place. He would know everything that was going on. He would know everybody's business. Um, The tax collectors at that time, uh, some uh, commentators have described them as the small-time mafia of their day. They had bought their position from Rome, and the way it worked out is Rome uh, wanted them to collect a certain amount of money. Remember the census that Rome took when uh, Jesus was born? Well, based on that census, they knew about how many people lived in certain areas. So, okay, Capernaum, you are supposed to, Matthew, you're supposed to collect this amount of money. Now, what made it a job that people wanted, even though everybody hated them, is that so long as you paid Rome what they were due, you could collect as much as you could get away with. And because you had the power of Rome behind you, extortion was their middle name. And so they were hated hated people. But again, he was out there in public, and it was his business to know everything that was going on. And I can just imagine, because obviously he was a well-educated man, he had to write letters to Rome, he had to keep all kinds of financial records, he had obviously really studied the Old Testament scriptures. And can you imagine sitting there and hearing, or even watching, he probably went to some of the things that Jesus did, the things he spoke, and oh my goodness, 
he fulfills this prophecy. And then, oh, he did that one. And he did that one. And what it must have been like to sit there and watch these different things fulfilled. And then we know that one day, Jesus stops by his tax booth and he says, follow me. Matthew gets up and he follows. And he didn't turn back. He didn't question. Some of the other disciples did. Some of them, you find them asking, why are you doing this? And what's that? And, you know, are you really God? And Matthew never did that. He followed Jesus. Now, one more note on Matthew from another commentator. Even though Matthew's thrust is decidedly Jewish, he's also aware of the fact that the Gentiles have an appointed place in the kingdom of God. Accordingly, he attempts to condition Hebrew thinking with this concept. He alludes to those who will come from afar to sit with the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven, and he plainly declares that the Gentiles have hope in the name of Christ. And Matthew's account of the great commission is universal in its scope. Next, let's look at Mark. It's one of the shortest, and all commentators agree it's probably the earliest of the Gospels. His authority for writing it is he was a disciple of, and he worked really closely with Peter. Uh, He was also a cousin of Barnabas, and he traveled for a time with Paul. Then they had a falling out. Then when Paul was at the end of his life and imprisoned in Rome, he said for the other people in Jerusalem to send Mark to him. And it could have been there that we know that Paul was beheaded shortly thereafter, that he perhaps then joined with Peter, got to know him, was mentored by him and his audience is to a Roman world and he probably wrote it when he was in Rome. Now he was younger he could emphasize more with outsiders and so in writing for this Gentile audience he didn't talk about Jewish things he didn't talk about Jesus genealogy he didn't talk about his controversies with the Jewish leaders he doesn't make references to the Old Testament he just emphasizes Christ as a suffering servant one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Whereas Matthew emphasizes the Lord's words, Mark talks about his actions. In fact, he only records one sermon. He constantly said, he did this, he did this, he did this. And he uses a word that was used with servants a lot. It was the word euthus, which means immediately. Immediately he did this. Immediately he did that. He talked about the activities of the Savior. And in talking about these activities, these form the core of what Matthew and Luke wrote about. Luke, let's go on to him, is the only Gentile author of the New Testament. He not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he wrote Acts. Now, Luke was a very careful historian. In fact, his history is just precise. Um, One commentator said, because he specifically wrote for the benefit of Theophilus, apparently a Gentile of some stature, his gospel was composed with a Gentile audience in mind. And his intent is to show that a Christian's faith is based upon historically reliable and verifiable events. Luke often refers to Christ as the Son of Man, emphasizing his humanity, and he shares many details that are not found in the other Gospel accounts. The Greeks were preoccupied with the consideration of man, and it is not without purpose, therefore, that Luke focuses on Christ as a perfect example of humanity. Luke also, obviously, in his research, he interviewed lots of people, and one of them was Mary. 
we find out more about her in the book of Luke than in any of the other Gospels. And he, in fact, he tells a lot of stories about women. He obviously had a great respect for women and includes them in his Gospel account frequently. And the power of his history is just so great. I often say to people, you know, well, I, I'm a writer and I teach, I've taught a lot of writing classes, still do. And I will say to people, you know, don't embellish, just tell the story. Let the power of the story show through. And that's exactly what Luke does. Um, another commentator said, Luke provides first-rate testimony for the genuineness of Jesus' miracles. A scientist by profession, he was a doctor. He thoroughly investigated the claims of Christ's supernatural works. He mentions 26 of them, six which are unique to him, and he treats them as historical reality. And his history and the sources are really good evidence for it. Moreover, the evidence for the Lord's virgin birth must have been overwhelming for a doctor to acknowledge and argue the case as strongly as Luke does. So, really a, a wonderful book. Then the book of John. John wrote much later than the others. It's kind of interesting that his brother James, he and James and John were both disciples of Jesus. He was the first disciple who died a martyr's death, and John was the last. James, John, and Peter were part of Jesus' inner circle. They were the only ones that were at the Transfiguration, and they were the only ones that participated in a number of other miracles. He was part of the inner circle, and he is the one that was called the Beloved Disciple. He is also the only disciple who did not abandon Jesus at the cross. All of the rest ran away. He didn't. He stayed there with him, and he's the one to whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother. And church history tells us that he took care of Mary the rest of her life. Remember, she would have been a very young woman when Jesus died. She had Jesus when she was perhaps 14 to 16 years old. So she was just in her 40s when her son was taken from her. John, as you can tell through his writings, was a very mystical, thoughtful man. And if you look back early on in some of the other Gospels, he and his brother were called the Sons of Thunder. And they were the ones that were going, well, when you get in your kingdom, we want to be on your right hand, your left hand. And they, uh, who would have ever thought that these sort of power-grabbing, angry young men would have developed into the disciples that they developed into. Now, John, too, wrote his gospel much later than the others. He saw the gospel spread into all the known world. He saw people from all parts of the world come to trust Jesus as Savior. And so his audience, it's not written to any specific group of people. It's written to all people at all times. And he has much more the philosophical, uh, theological explanations, much more so than the other Gospels do. One of the most interesting things, and we'll talk about some more next week in the Gospel of John, but in Exodus, remember, God says to Moses when he spoke to him out of the burning bush, God, uh, Moses said, who are you? And God said, I am that I am. Now, what's really interesting is how in the book of John, those statements are completed, and they're completed in what are called the I am statements of Jesus. And he says, for example, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. 
I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. So God completes. This is who he is. And we can see it in Jesus. Now, when he made these statements, people knew exactly what he was talking about, particularly when the religious leaders confronted him and they understood when he used the phrase, I am, to describe himself in John eight fifty eight, they knew that he was identifying himself with God and their immediate response was to take up stones to stone him, which was the totally appropriate and right response because if they didn't believe it, if Jesus wasn't really that, he was blaspheming God. And so this is one of the things sometimes people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did uh, many times. And his hostile audience recognized that. And that was one of the reasons why he was crucified. Now, there's no doubt of who he was to the religious leaders. And they determined to kill him because he made this claim. But again, for those who believe in him, I'm going to reread John 1, 5, 11 through 13, this time in the message translation, where he says, this is a testimony in essence. God gave us eternal life. The life is in his son. So whoever has the son has life. Whoever rejects the son rejects life. My purpose in writing is simply this, that you who believe in God's Son will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life, the reality and not the illusion. Now, there are so many more things that we could say, and we will be covering more about Jesus in the coming weeks. But I think a great ending for this is the way John put it in 2125, and this is in the Phillips translation, where he said, There are many other things which Jesus did, and I suppose that if each one were written down in detail, there would not be room in the whole world for all the books that would have to be written. But we do have these four Gospels, this good news about Jesus. So I challenge you to read, reread, and pray that the Lord will give your mind and heart insight and understanding so that you might know Him deeply, assuredly, and forever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format. And there's other materials at www.bible805.com. And do subscribe to the podcast so that you won't miss out on any of them as you come to know Jesus better and better. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.